Our Father, we thank you for your infallible word. You said the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. You said the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We thank you, Holy Father, that by your word, your servant is warned, but you also promise that in keeping them, there is great reward. So on this Lord's Day, as we open your word, we open our hearts to its truth. We pray that you would have free sway over our thinking, that we would want to embrace the truth that is found and that we would want to obey it with all of our hearts. Father, I know this message is important and I know I'm tired, but I pray that in weakness you would give me strength, that all who will hear this message in the days ahead, that it might be used to build up the church and to help people who've never met you to come to know you. And we thank you and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the book of First Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter three. If you're new to the Bible, all the books in the Bible that begin with the letter T, they're found in the New Testament. They go from long to short and they're right after Gary eats popcorn. Go everywhere preaching Christ, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you can find... Any one of those books, you can find nine books in the New Testament. We're in a series entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. We're between books of the Bible. Usually I preach through entire books, but we're between books right now. Today I want to speak about end times apostasy. Now sometimes people ask me, do I believe if we are living in the last days? And my answer is, well, it all depends on what you mean by that. It would seem natural to think that the last days refers only to that future time just before Jesus comes back from heaven. But as you read the New Testament, it becomes obvious that the apostles understood that this new age called the last days began with the enactment of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, the old age, the old covenant, the old deal, passes away to the last days because a new time has dawned. This is what Peter said when he stood up on the day of Pentecost. Listen to these words from Acts 2. But this, what they had just witnessed, this miracle of people speaking all these different languages and dialects within the language that they had never learned previously, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And so Peter believed that he was in the last days with the coming of the indwelling promised spirit of God. Likewise, the writer of the Hebrews says this in the opening chapter, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so the writer of the Hebrews believed that he was living in the last days. This being so, the New Testament teaches that with the beginning of the birth of the church, we have been in the last days. You say, well, how could it be that we're in the last days because it's been centuries 
since the church was started. Well, just know that the scriptural writers, when they're inspired by God, they're not always using the terms the way you think they should use the terms. In their mind, the supreme event, the greatest of all events, the events of all events that altered forever the course of human history was the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And from that moment on until Jesus returned, God's people were living in the last days because it was possible for anyone who would turn in faith to Jesus to be saved. And so these days differ from all the days that came before Jesus' incarnation. Add to that, the New Testament writers also believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. When we speak of the imminency of Christ's return, we are affirming that he could come back at any moment that nothing prophetically has ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and snatch away the church to catch us up. Maybe it will happen today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. But the promise Jesus made will be fulfilled. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Where he is at this moment in heaven, someday he is coming to catch up the church and to carry us there. Now, I've heard people quote verses like Matthew 24 and verse 13, where Jesus said, this gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end shall come. And they say, well, the gospel has to be preached to the whole world for Christ to come back. Yes, for the second coming, but not for the rapture. In fact, contextually, there in the Olivet Discourse is the book of Revelation affirms that promise will be fulfilled during the time of Jacob's trouble, what we call the Great Tribulation Period. So when we think of the second coming, it's part of a predicted, prophecy-driven schedule where the rapture as always could happen at any moment. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. There has to be a one-world government. There has to be a one-world economy where people will not be able to buy or sell anything unless they take the name of the beast and the number of his name, which is 666. And all of these kinds of things will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation. And that's why the rapture is pictured before the tribulation. That's why it's described as something that could happen at any moment because of its imminency. Now, let me just say the Bible can use the term the last days also to refer to that final time frame just before Jesus comes back. And so context determines the meaning of terms. With that said, I believe with all of my heart that we are living in the last of the last days, that we are living in the closing shadows that will lead to the catching up of the church in Christ's second coming. You say, well, how can you be so certain? Because God predicted at the end of time before Messiah's second coming that he would gather the Jewish people into the land. God wrote of their scattering, and then he wrote of their regathering. Listen to what Moses said concerning their scattering. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. He's not talking about the Assyrian captivity or the Babylonian captivity. He's talking about their being driven among the nations of the world. Jesus made this same prophetic statement on the Mount of Olives in Luke chapter 21. He said, after the temple is destroyed and they will fall by the edge of the sword, meaning the Jewish people, and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles 
are fulfilled. And that all started to happen in 70 AD. Moses gave the same warning in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Listen to these words. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. However, Moses also wrote 1,400 years before Christ, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. He wrote of this truth earlier. I just read it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. But then a few verses he quickly adds, but from there... You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things happen to you in the latter days, or you could render it the last days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. So Moses clearly has in view an event that would take place in the latter times at the end of time. And so for 1,900 years, it appeared that God was doing nothing. And so the amillennialists of our day who say God's done with the nation of Israel, those who came out of Catholicism, like Calvin and Luther, they were taught as young men that the church was the new Israel. They just put a different spin on it. And they thought that God had no future for Israel. And it appeared they were right for 1,900 years. Who would have ever dreamed in May of 1949 that God would bring the children of Israel back into the land and make them a nation? So when we see these signs for the second coming being fulfilled, we know the rapture is that much closer. And one of those signs is the coming apostasy, the coming falling away, an apostasy that will lead to the apostasy of all apostasies. An apostasy that will take place in the latter days at the end of time. That's what our text deals with. He's going to unfold it in the fourth chapter, but to understand it, we need to begin in chapter 3 in verse 14. Follow along, if you would, in your Bibles. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer, and pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. As we speak on this subject of apostasy, I think it's very important that we define some terms. Apostasy is not atheism. Apostasy is not agnosticism or Buddhism or Hinduism or any of the other isms that you can think of. In fact, as you look at the word apostasia, it comes directly 
as apostasy into our English Bibles, it simply means to fall away. And in the New Testament, it has a narrow context. Specifically, it refers to someone who claims to follow Christ Jesus, claims to be a Christian, and then in the process, they either A, embrace heresy, or they completely renounce Jesus altogether. They either create a new form of Christianity, which is apostasy, falling away from the faith, or they just turn their back on Jesus 100%. Now, there are people who have never, ever even heard the name of Jesus who cannot be apostates because they can't fall away from something that they've never heard. So that's not the focus of our subject today, though certainly apostasy helps create fertile ground for unbelief in other realms. I went into the ministry just shy of 45 years ago. And I want to tell you, in the last three or four years, I've seen more pastors, associate pastors, music pastors, evangelists, and so-called Christian apologists turned their back on the Christian faith than I had in the prior 40 years. In fact, there's a new term for evangelicals. It's exvangelical. That's what they call themselves, people who have turned away from the faith. And we're living in a day certainly of false cults, of religious pluralism and fanaticism. We're living in days which hell seems to be in charge, but it's not. Our God is in charge, and he has written about this in advance And he wants you and I to understand it. Listen to what Jesus warned in the Olivet Discourse. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. He also said in the same sermon, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So such times should not be of surprise to us because the scripture prophesied these things as the apostle Paul does this morning in our text. The Bible predicted these days would come. And so how can the church minister in times like these? Do we uh, just fold up shop? Do we create big walls and go into hiding? Do we camouflage our lives? Do we go on the defense rather than the offensive? Well, God gives us some clear instruction. We need to be faithful to the admonition. Come out and be separate from them, saith the Lord. And at the same time, faithful to the commission. Go and preach the gospel to every person under heaven. And so this morning, there are three principles, I believe, that God gives us for effective ministry while God is building his church, which will be completed, of course, at the rapture. Three principles of how a body of Christians like this body can be effective in a tidal wave of sin and apostasy. The first that I want us to consider is the church's conduct in the midst of apostasy. Let's think for a moment about the church's conduct in the midst of apostasy. Right here in verses 14 and 15, Paul spells out for us his motivation for writing the letter. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So he's writing to instruct us about our behavior in the church of the living God and what our duties are as members of a local church. Now, these few verses have tremendous implications for us today. And there are many today who think that the church is some ancient institution that is irrelevant, and so they either totally ignore it or they refashion it into what they think 
it should be. But the church is a divine institution. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are for defensive purposes. We're not on the defense, we're on the offense. We are to charge an unbelieving world with truth. And sadly, today, I think there are many Christians who are asleep who have no idea as to what is really happening in the day in which we are living. And so we would be wise to listen to God's counsel. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delighted, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. I'm writing. This is important. And he's writing with a sense of his own biblical apostolic authority. He is aware of the fact that he is an apostle that he is speaking on God's behalf and they need to listen. I mean, how else do you take the language, this I command you, or these words, if anyone does not obey the instructions I lay down, take note of him. And so Paul is writing, he's going to come himself and personally investigate some of the reforms that he's going to give to Timothy. He recognizes that he is providentially delayed at this moment, and thank God he was, otherwise we would not have the book of 1 Timothy. But in the meantime, Timothy, I'm telling you as the shepherd of the church there in Ephesus, how you are to pastor that church. So this is apostolic authority. He's not giving his own opinion. He's writing under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And so the New Testament is our foundational deed. It's our constitution. It's our ministry manual of how we should live. And I think it's interesting to note here from this verse how Paul combines both doctrine and practice. And he does that in most of his letters. He tells us what we are to believe, then he tells us how we are to behave. But he recognizes that knowledge all by itself without application will just make you proud and puffed up. And so in verse 14, he says, I am writing these, these instructions to you. He's referencing what he had previously written earlier in the letter. And so his instruction in chapter 3 in verse 5 is all a part of what it means to take care of the church of God. If you've read this letter, then you know in chapter 1, he instructed the church how to be alert and aware of false teachers that would come in. Then in chapter 2, how the church should conduct itself in public worship. Then in chapter 3, how to select pastors, men, not women, men. There are no women pastors. Any woman who calls herself a pastor is not a pastor. It's a made-up title because God has specific roles that some only men can do in the church and others that only men can do in the church. And so he gives the doctrinal qualifications for someone to be an elder, and he's getting ready to give instruction on how we should apply this doctrine. So what he wants us to hear in verse 15 is critically important because what you believe will always dictate potentially how you behave. That's true in every realm. Some people have a blessed marriage for the simple reason that they understand God's blueprint for marriage. They understand the doctrinal truths behind marriage and with that knowledge they can apply it and see God's blessing. Some do not have a blessed marriage because they don't know 
what God has said. Some are not raising godly children. They're raising juvenile delinquents for the simple reason they do not know what God says about how to raise a godly heritage. Some people today are in financial bondage for the simple reason they do not know what God's principles are concerning giving, saving, investing, planning, budgeting, and so on. And so right behavior always comes from right doctrine. Proper behavior comes from sound teaching. And so in verse 15, the Apostle Paul gives us three wonderful truths about the church. Don't miss them. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So notice how he describes God's people, the household of God, number one. Number two, he calls us the church of the living God. And number three, he calls us the, the pillar in support of the truth. And in each of these phrases, he describes a different aspect of the church as it relates to our duty and to our responsibility as church members. And so he's reminding the elders, he's reminding the deacons, he's reminding the church members. And by the way, he assumes that the people that he is writing are church members. God knows nothing of an unaffiliated Christian in the New Testament. If you're born again, wherever you may be in the world, you need to be a member of the best Bible-believing church you can find in your area. It might not be all that you would like it to be, but if they have the gospel, then you should give yourself to that group of people, and you should be under the leadership of those elders. So to conduct ourselves properly, especially in days when folks are falling away, he first reminds us, point a there on your outline, that the church is the family of God. The church is the family of God. Again, in verse 15, I write so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. Now, the word household is the Greek word oikos. Some older translations say the house of God, and certainly the word oikos can refer to a house, but the church, the people of God, can also rightly be described as God's house, God's church. By the way, I hope you know never once in the New Testament does the term church refer to brick and mortar. It always refers to people. It is true under the old covenant that God had a uh, temple for his people, but under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. And in this context, unlike in uh, 17th century English where it was understood, today the word house typically refers to a building. But even if you didn't know Greek, you could figure it out contextually that he's using the term oikos in reference to a family. And so some translations render it that way to bring out the warmth. I mean, think about it. Paul has already said in verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 12 of this chapter that the church, in essence, is a family. In verse 4, for instance, he mentions that a pastor must be one who manages his own household well. What's he talking about? He's talking about the man's family. Just as a man's household refers to his family, even so the church, the body of Christ, refers to a family. And so this concept of the church being God's family is much underscored in the New Testament. And so one of Paul's favorite words is the term brethren, or you could paraphrase it, brothers and sisters. 
When a sinner is born again, he immediately becomes a member of a family and will become brothers and sisters in Christ. When you come to chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to advise young Timothy how to treat members of the local church. Why? Because they are his family. So he gives specific instructions to older men, how you interface with them, younger men, older women, and so forth. And uh, of course, it's a beautiful term because it gives a sense of warmth. I hope you are a member of a church family. We often say to people, do you have a church family? That's good theology because that's really what the local assembly is. It is a family. And again, he's assuming that people have made that kind of commitment, but since the church is not a building but a family, it is a living organism. And like with any living organism, it needs to be fed. And so a shepherd's responsibility is to feed the flock. And it's not by accident that God uses food terms to describe his word, milk, meat, honey, bread. And so the church cannot grow from being fed. And God's church does not grow simply by addition, it grows by nutrition, because when the people of God are fed, healthy sheep will eventually reproduce. And it's very tragic in our day to see so many pastors who waste their time and the church's time doing all the wrong things, such that when they stand up on the Lord's day, they have very little to say. And that's why I come prepared to preach this book every week, because I'm not here to reveal my mind, I'm here to reveal God's mind. I've come to preach the word, and I hope you've come to listen to the word, and I hope your listening won't stop before I'm done preaching, all right? So first, the church is the family of God. Secondly, the church is the assembly of God. The church is the assembly of God. I write that you might know how to conduct himself in the church of the living God. The word church is the word ecclesia, and it's a word that refers to an assembly of people, and it's used in different ways and in different contexts. Stephen uses it in Acts 7 to describe the children of Israel. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament, but he is just describing that there was an assembly of people in the wilderness, Acts 7, 38. It's the word ecclesia. The same word is used in Acts 19 of an unbelieving mob that hate the apostles so much they want to kill him. They're called the church. It's an assembly, in that case, of people who hate the Apostle Paul and what he stands for. Very often, the word ecclesia is used to describe the whole body of Christ, but most often, nearly a hundred times in the New Testament, is used to describe the local assembly, the local assembly of God's people. And so the phrase, the living God, is an expression that's in direct contrast to the paganism of the first century where people had idols that they displayed like something in a museum. And yet God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so the one true living God lives in a community. We just sang a few minutes ago, and the singing was magnificent this morning. And the scripture says God inhabits the praises of his people. You can't get that when you're at home. Some of you are home because you're lazy and you have stopped obeying God and assembling on the first day of the week. And you need to come back. And if you're listening in some other state and you're not active in a local assembly, you need to be. I'm not talking about those dear mothers who are home today with sick children. I'm talking about people who 
can't be, who, who, who aren't here but should be here, and there's a, a community of life that happens that will revolutionize your life. And so if we realize that God is in our midst, when we come to worship, it will produce certainly a certain reverence and a zeal. If we realize that God is in our midst and our fellowship for one another should be more caring, more Christ-centered. If we recognize that God is in our midst, again, I will walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then we will with boldness be a more vocal witness to an unbelieving world. If we really believe as the Bible teaches that the congregation is the church of the living God, it ought to change our conduct, especially in these days of apostasy where people are abandoning the faith. So the pastoral epistles are really the manuals on how to do church. And what is so pathetic is so many so-called church growth books that have come out that have very little to do with how to start, how to build, how to increase a local church God's way. Listen, God gave us three books. They're called First and Second Timothy and Titus, and they're basically manuals on how God wants us to do church. And sadly, there are many a pastor who are using worldly techniques. We speak of the judgment seat of Christ when every man's work will be tested, be it gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Contextually, though you can broaden it in application to all Christians, contextually, he's dealing with pastors. He's warning pastors, be careful how you build God's church. You will either build it with worldly wisdom or you will build it with the word of God. And if you build it on worldly wisdom, then at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. And so we are to conduct ourselves properly in these days of apostasy. And so we need to know, one, the church is the family of God and also that the church is the assembly of God, but also the church is the pillar in support of the truth. It's the pillar in support of the truth. Look again at verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And here it is, the pillar in support of the truth. So we need to ask, in what sense is the assembly of born-again Christians the pillar in support of the truth? The King James renders it the pillar in ground of the truth. The ESV puts it, the pillar in buttress of the truth. The CSB renders it, the pillar in foundation of the truth. So God is giving an architectural image, which would mean much to Timothy. Why? Because he's pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus, and they're one of the great wonders of the world called the Temple of Diana is there. And off of this magnificent marble slab are 127 pillars. And so what is the purpose of a pillar and a support or a pillar or in a buttress as underscored in different translations? Well, let's think for just a moment about this word support or ground or buttress or foundation. It's a Greek word that means to make stable. And it refers to that part of the building that supported the superstructure. It can be used to refer to the part of the building that is underground, or it can be used to describe the Roman buttresses in the first century that carried all the way into the Middle Ages of those marvelous Gothic cathedrals uh, that helped keep a building secure. 
And so while the local church is built on Jesus, he is the foundation, he is the way, the truth, and the life, the church also itself is described as the pillar and foundation of the truth. And as a buttress, as a support, the local church is to protect the truth. We are to make sure that the truth is not brushed away, that it doesn't fall down. In fact, Isaiah uses the opposite imagery in Isaiah, the 59th chapter, where he says, truth is fallen in the street and morality is not even able to enter. And so we, the church, the people of God, are to support the truth, why? Because it's absolute. It never, ever, ever changes. It is something you can stand on that you can hold to. But unfortunately, many local churches today, they've turned away from the truth because it's not relevant, it's offensive. People will get mad, people will leave, people won't stay. And so on the one hand, the church is the support, the foundation, the mainstay, the ground, the buttress of the truth. But on the other hand, notice it's described as a pillar. And the purpose of a pillar is to hold up the roof and the whole building so that it can be seen. And so while we are the support of the truth, we are to hold up the truth so that the world can see that truth. The church is to hold it up high so that people can see it and hopefully believe it. The pillar aspect of the church's ministry relates primarily to our display of the truth, much like a statue that's put up on a pedestal so people can see it. And so as Paul told the church at Philippi, we must hold forth the word of life. He told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are to be living epistles known and read by all men. So our duty to the truth is not only to stop it from being falsified, but we are to bear witness, we are to spread it. And Paul is giving us doctrine, what it is that we should know, so that it will in turn influence how we are to behave. And so our conduct in days of apostasy is predicated on the fact that the church is a family, a living organism, it's the assembly of God, and it is the pillar in support of the truth. This is to be the church's conduct. But he goes on further, and he underscores the church's confession. The church's confession, Roman numeral two there, in the midst of apostasy. So just what is this truth that we are to hold up so high? What is the truth that we are to keep from being falsified? Well, of course, the whole Bible, what is commonly called the faith. And in this context, Paul gives a little summary of the faith. The articular use of the word faith is not referring to an act of faith, but that body of truth that Jude says was delivered by the apostles once and for all to the body of Christ. And so he gives us a little summary, and he's going to draw a contrast in a minute. That's why I'm going through this. He gives us a little summary of an early creed that was called a common confession that he deemed the mystery of godliness. In essence, he's saying here in verse 16, by unanimous confession, by common agreement, 
We as true Christians believe these marvelous six lines. Now, many, because of the way it's constructed in the Koine Greek of the New Testament, think that this was actually a hymn that was sung. And either way, whether they sung it or just stated it, it doesn't change the truth. Notice verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, the word mystery, it comes from the Greek word mysterion, and it's used in the New Testament of something that was once hidden and now has been revealed. And again, if you didn't know a word of Greek, most Greek words you can figure out just by reading. So if you read in Ephesians chapter three, Paul says, great is the mystery. And he describes something that was hidden in the Old Testament, namely that the Jews and Gentiles would be brought together into one people, the living church of God. And so Paul here is describing here something that was hidden It's in kernel form in the Old Testament. It's given by prophecy and type and so forth, but now it is fully revealed in the day in which we live. It is certainly not a complete list of biblical doctrine, but it is an essential list that if someone is a true child of God, they will embrace. Now notice the first truth that he mentions as a part of this common confession, and it is that Christ was revealed in the flesh. Christ was revealed in the flesh. Now some later manuscripts for clarification over those who are denying Jesus' deity render the verse, God was revealed in the flesh. But the Greek text simply says he who was revealed in the flesh. In either case, the Bible affirms that God became a man. And the prologue of John's gospel, he writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he adds, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the first truth that any genuine church will proclaim is that God was revealed in the flesh. God didn't simply come as a spirit, but he came in human flesh. As the prophet said, a baby will be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. God put on human flesh around his person. He was revealed in the flesh, not only in his virgin birth, in his sinless life, and in his substitutionary death, but also in his glorious resurrection, as Paul will affirm. Secondly, not only was he revealed in the flesh, we also learn that Christ was vindicated in the spirit. Christ was vindicated in the spirit. Was Jesus Christ God in human flesh? Yes, he was. How do we know? Because he was vindicated by the spirit, a word that means endorsed. The Holy Spirit, in other words, put his stamp of approval on the life and confession of Jesus. Though his own Jewish people, for the most part, rejected him, nonetheless, he was vindicated in the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, in other words, authenticated that Jesus was and is the second member of the Holy Trinity. And how did the Spirit of God accomplish this? Well, he vindicated Jesus by both the prophecies that he inspired men to write and that Jesus fulfilled when he did, for instance, particular miracles. For instance, the Holy Spirit wrote in the Old Testament that the Messiah would heal the sick, that he would raise the dead, 
that he would give sight to the blind. No one had ever given sight to the blind before. That he would unstop the deaf ears. That he would have dominion over the demonic realm. Not to mention lives that he would radically change. On the day of Pentecost, Peter reminds his Jewish brethren of this truth. He said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Do you remember that day when Jesus did a triple miracle? He said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus said these Pharisees should have understood that the miracles he performed and the demons that he cast out vindicated, authenticated that by the finger of God, as Luke says, by the Spirit of God, God had indeed put his stamp of approval that Jesus is Lord, that he was no ordinary human being, but that he is God in human flesh. Do you remember also, even by the words he spoke on that one occasion, they send the temple police out to arrest Jesus, and they go and they attempt to arrest him, and they're just dumbfounded by the things that he says, and they come back and they say, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Spirit of God vindicated that he was God by the prophecies he performed, by the miracles he did, by the sinless life he lived, and by the things that he spoke. And ultimately, he vindicated him by the resurrection. So Paul can say he was declared with power to be the Son of God, how? By the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus was endorsed or vindicated that he was God in human flesh. The early church sang that, they confessed it. Notice too, that Christ was seen by angels. Jesus was revealed in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, and Christ was seen by angels. Again, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. Angels throughout the life of the Lord Jesus Christ were watching and serving the Son of God. They're there at his birth. As the angel Gabriel first came to predict to Mary in Nazareth, the Spirit of God will overshadow your womb and the offspring within you will be called the Son of God. Another unnamed angel came to Joseph and said the pregnancy is not illegitimate. It is by the supernatural conceiving work of the Spirit of God. Then a host of angels came to appear to those shepherds to announce his birth. Christ is also seen by angels during his earthly life. They protected him when he was an infant. And so an angel came to warn Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod the Great. They also ministered to him immediately after the time of the wilderness temptation. Likewise, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his soul shrank back from conceiving the truth that for the first time in all of eternity, he would be separated from an unbroken, holy, perfectly loving relationship. An angel came to strengthen him. And the angels of God, the scripture says, were there ready to defend him. 
All he had to do was call down an angel and he could have stopped there in Gethsemane, that great arrest. Jesus is also seen by angels as they announce his resurrection. After they roll away the stone, not to let Jesus out so that people could come in and see he was not there, then two angels specifically announced his resurrection that he is not here because he has risen. Christ is also seen by angels when he's ascended up into heaven. And those two angels said he will come back in the exact same way that you saw him leave. And then in Jude 14, when he comes back, as Matthew 25 underscores, he will come with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. So Jesus was seen by angels in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and when he returns from heaven. The supernatural appearance of angels was God's way of saying, this is no ordinary person. This is indeed God the Son. The fourth stanza of their confession is Christ was proclaimed among the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations. Reading further into verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, notice, proclaimed among the nations. They did it then, we do it today. As we go into the entire world in obedience to the risen Christ, we preach the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go therefore, or more literally, as you go, make disciples of all nations. On another occasion, there on the day he ascends into heaven, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and yes, even to the remotest part of the earth. So the early church, they knew and believed that Christ is indeed to be proclaimed to the entire world. And I believe our greatest need today in Bible-believing churches is first to pray like it really matters and then to go and to preach this good news. And so while on the one hand, there is the aspect coming here, like in 1 Corinthians 14, and you invite people to come to church, and the assumption in 1 Corinthians 14, there is unbelievers present in the local assembly because they were invited there by believers. So on the one hand, there's the come and see aspect, but on the other hand, there's to go and tell, you are to go and to preach the gospel. That's the mission of the early church. They sang about it, and that is our mission. But Jesus, because he was preached, point E there on your outline, Christ was believed on in the world. He was believed on in the world. Verse 16 plainly says that because Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, he was believed on in the world. That is the result of preaching the gospel. When the gospel seed falls, and hearts that are prepared. Look, you can call yourself spiritual. You can say, I'm a great church member, but if you're not going in proclaiming, you have created a false sense of spirituality. You may not go with the same passion and ability God has given me as an evangelist, but you nonetheless are to go and to share this good news. You're not to grow weary, Paul will tell the Galatians, in preaching the gospel. God promises that his word will not 
return empty without accomplishing the purposes for which he sent it. It's living seed. So don't lose heart just because someone doesn't respond. In the parable of the sower, he describes four kinds of soils, and only on one kind of soil, good soil, do the people respond. And yet, we have promises like here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul will write to the church at Thessalonica for this reason. We also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Some will respond. Some, you will be planting a seed for the first time. Others, like the church at Thessalonica, they will respond immediately. You accepted it as the word of men. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is able to perform its work in you who believe. So some people you meet, You are planting a seed that someone else will harvest. Other people have been prayed for. People have witnessed to them. And God has been preparing their heart. And you give them the plan of salvation. And in faith, they will bow their head and receive Jesus as Lord. Now, notice the sixth and final stanza. Christ was taken up in glory. He was taken up in glory. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so at the ascension, he left this world to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now the truths in this hymn represent some of the great doctrines of the faith that the church is to be responsible in preaching and teaching as part of our common confession. It represents what we as the church is to hold up as the pillar in support of the truth. The truth that we are to lift high that men might see it and understand it and in response believe it. We're not to tell people just what they want to hear, trying to be relevant. We are to preach what they need to hear because the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. So having discussed the church's conduct, he then unfolded for us the church's confession in the midst of apostasy. Third and finally, the church's concern in the midst of apostasy. What is the church's concern to be? Well, Paul begins chapter four with an immediate and stark contrast. He moves from what he calls in verse 16, the mystery of godliness, to what he calls in verse one, the doctrines of demons. Follow along. But... The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So having set up the contrast with the word but, Paul now warns us that the apostates have a different kind of confession. False teachers promote a different message, and in turn, they live, therefore, a different lifestyle. And because the church is the pillar in support of the truth, we need to know about such people so that we're not caught off guard. So we would do well to pay attention this morning. First, he tells us, apostasy is predicted by the Spirit. Apostasy is predicted by the Spirit. Paul informs us that what he is about to convey is a prophecy that comes directly from the Holy Spirit. Notice, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Question, when did the Spirit of God give this prophecy? 
Well, it could possibly be that Paul is referring to what Jesus said on the Mount of Olivet, a sermon that by this time he would have well been familiar with. Jesus said there, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. I've told you in advance. We've always had false teachers, but Jesus is looking at a future time when there would be a plethora of false prophets and false teachers. Or it's possible that Paul is referring to a prediction he himself made that the Spirit of God uh, spoke through him. It's recorded in Acts 20, where we read, I know, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw the disciples after them. Or it's possible that even as he is penning this verse of Scripture, the Spirit of God at this moment is giving him a prophetic word. In either case, the Spirit of God warns, in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Now, unlike the term last days, where it can refer to that time beginning with Pentecost or even the last of the last days because Paul in 2 Timothy 3 describes the last days as going progressively worse and worse. The term latter times refers specifically in Scripture to that time frame at the very end of the age before the second coming of Christ. This warning certainly would have application for Timothy as a pastor because there's always been apostasy in the church but it especially has application for those who live at the end of the age where sin and apostasy would grow and multiply. And so God teaches us that as we approach the second coming, apostasy will increase and it will culminate in the great apostasy. Again, Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, and at that time, many will fall away. He's describing those who turn their back on the Christian faith and will deliver up one another and hate one another. Even within churches, even within the saints of God, there will be people who will be turncoats who will go against the people of God. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So likewise, the Apostle Paul told the church at Thessalonica that it was impossible that they were in the tribulation period. Why? Because the apostasy of apostasies hadn't happened. We're going to study this in a few weeks. There has been apostasy throughout the inception of the church. As you move progressively towards the end of the age, there's growing apostasy, and that will plant the seeds for the apostasy of all apostasies when the Antichrist comes and presents himself as the true Messiah. But here's the point. During some unspecified time in the future, many, many will fall away from the sound truth of Christianity. No longer will they live by biblical truth and proclaim the Christian message. Instead, the things that they once stand for, they will turn their back on. And so while again throughout the history of the church, there's been doctrinal controversy and confusion and conflicts of one kind or another between truth and heresy, the battle is raging in our day like it has never raged before in the history of the church. And we 
shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because the Spirit explicitly said a long time ago that this day was coming. So apostasy first is predicted by the Spirit. Second, apostasy is described by Paul. It's described by Paul. The Apostle Paul gives us four ways by which we can recognize a false teacher in the final paragraph that follows. First, he teaches us that false teachers are energized by Satan. They're energized by the evil one to be able to present doctrines of demons. Follow it. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, notice there's a difference here between the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, and deceitful spirit, small s. He's referring to both the Spirit of God and to demons. And so the Apostle Paul does not trace false teaching merely to false teachers, but he is reminding us behind false teachers, there are demons who are at work. Now, we tend to think of Satan and demons simply as enticing people directly into evil, and indeed they can do that. But demons also deceive people into error to embrace what is contrary to the truth. So just as there is the mystery of godliness that we just read about, there's also the mystery of lawlessness that surrounds the work of Satan and all of his fallen minions. And so people often ask me, how is it, Pastor? How is it possible that educated, otherwise intelligent people can swallow some of the fantastic teaching that the cults and all these aberrant groups have in our day. How could they follow such moronic nonsense? It's very simple. It's because there are demons that are at work. How could millions of people accept the teachings of Muhammad where you are being blessed to slit someone's throat? How could Roman Catholics accept papal infallibility? How could nominal Protestants reject the deity of Jesus? For the simple reason that behind false teachers are enticing and seducing demonic forces. Satan, he is the great imitator, and just as God has his pastors and his ministers, so the devil has his. Deceitful spirits work through false teachers. Paul reminded the Corinthians, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Here are some headlines reflecting doctrines of demons. I just gave you the pictures from the captions of the articles that went. This headline was entitled, Lutheran Church to Host Queer Camp This Summer for LGBTQ Teens. That, my friend, is a doctrine of a demon. Second, the Cultural Research Center reports 43% of millennials don't know, care, or believe that God exists. My friend, agnosticism and atheism is a doctrine of a demon. Here's a picture of the headquarters of the Swedish church, and the caption of the article said, Church of Sweden announces it's a transgender church. That, my friend, is a doctrine of a demon. Here in April of 2022, 
Earth, the Earth Day theme. And the theme was, quote, invest in our planet, the article says. Why? Because Earth is more than just a spaceship. She is our mother. She gives us life. There is nowhere else to go but to stay and love her. And by the way, this is being peddled to our children and the government school system all across America. And ironically, Earth Day is now considered to be the largest secular holiday in the world. And yet there is little that is secular about it. It is covered over in all kinds of spiritual falsehood and spiritual activities from singing to Mother Earth, interfaith conferences, on and on and on I go. Here's another doctrine of a demon. Pope Francis says he would definitely baptize aliens if they asked him. A, he believes there are aliens on other planets. When the scripture is clear, all life is in this place. We call Earth. All of the planets around shout death, shout the fall of man, shout that there is a problem in the universe. But this is the kind of doctrines of demons the evil one will use when the church is gone. What will be their explanation? These pilots see these lights flying and moving. I'm telling you, those are demons at work, and they will blame it on demons after the church is gone. The Methodist church, here's another one, seeks to ordain this lady pictured, a drag queen into pastoral ministry. This, my friend, is a doctrine of a demon. Here's another one. Ohio High School elects a lesbian couple as prom king and queen. Friend, that is a doctrine of a demon. Here's another one. Wildly popular prophetess Kat Kerr says, some beings are co-eternal, always existing alongside God, not created by him. That is a doctrine of a demon. Here the BBC reports, drag queen story hour, now in America's Bible Belt. Where specifically? Greenville, South Carolina. That is a doctrine of a demon. And then and as of April 11th, 2022, U.S. citizens can now select X as their gender marker on their U.S. passport applications for the accurate identification of themselves as either transgender or non-binary American. That, my friend, is a doctrine of a demon. People protest over the Supreme Court's leaked decision on abortion. They want to kill little babies in the womb in the most protected place they are to be. That, my friend, is a doctrine of a demon, and I don't care if it's the president or the vice president or some senator or congressman to propagate that as a preacher or anyone else is nothing short of a doctrine of a demon. Listen. But not only are these false teachers energized by the devil, secondly, false teachers lead people astray. And that the Spirit explicitly says they will lead people away from the faith. Friends will fall away from the faith. The goal is to seduce people. Why? To get them to depart from the faith. Again, it's articular. That body of truth that we call the Bible. Now understand, Scripture must interpret Scripture. It is absolutely impossible for a true Christian to fall away from the faith. And so when that pastor in D.C., in 2019, a 10,000-member attendance church now renounces the faith and embraces and gay parades the homosexual lifestyle. He was never saved to begin with. 
He was a false teacher, someone who had fallen away from the faith. Listen to what John reminds us of. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. 1 John 2.19 is underscoring that when someone comes into the church, even as a leader, even as a preacher, even as a pastor, the spirit of Antichrist is all over them when they renounce the faith because they were not really true Christians. Because if you have it, you can't lose it. And if you lost it, you never had it to begin with. But not only are these false teachers energized from, by demons, not only do they lead people away from the truth, the Bible says in verse 2, they're hypocrites. Notice, he tells us that these people, uh, these false teachers will get people to fall away. How? By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. False teachers preach one thing, but they practice another thing. They tell their disciples what they should do, but they they don't do it themselves. And that's how the devil works, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. And a true man of God, with honesty and integrity of heart, practices what he preaches. But the devil's got his hypocrites so that when they go and they fall, then all those people on the edge of apostasy, on the edge of making a decision, aha, you see, I was right. This whole thing is a scam. I now reject Jesus as Lord. Jesus reminded us that you will know them by their fruits. And notice the word seared here. It's the Greek word that we get directly into English, our word cauterize, cauterizo. Cauterize comes from it. It's when you take a hot branding iron and you brand something. Well, someone can have their conscience cauterized and just as a calf that has been branded cannot feel where he's been branded, some people develop an unfeeling conscience. And Jesus makes it clear that this proves that a person is not genuinely saved. They're led astray by hypocrisy, by these false teachers, and behind these false teachers are deceitful spirits. Notice further how he illustrates one particular heresy that they might uh, embrace, and he gives us kind of an exaggerated asceticism that they taught. In verse three, he speaks of these false teachers who are, notice, men, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now think your way through this. Marriage and food, they both have to do with natural bodily appetites, sex on the one hand, hunger on the other. However, some of these extreme aestheticists in Paul's day taught that an unmarried person, contrary to what scripture says is a general principle, that it's not good for a man to be alone, that an unmarried person was quote unquote, more spiritual. Likewise, people who abstain from certain foods we're more spiritual. Look, you ought to have your antennas up if someone begins to mess with God's plan for marriage. When they begin to talk about same-sex marriage or they tell us, you know, for Earth Day, we shouldn't be eating meats anymore. Bill Gates, I'm gonna have a good steak tonight before I'm done. Look, I'll eat all the meat I wanna eat. 
These are, these are false teachers. These are people who have a warped, distorted view of life. For God plainly says in verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. The fact that five times God over in his creation says it is good, 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 good, affirms that his creation is good, and we are to embrace these things with gratitude through the giving of thanks and with prayer. And then finally, apostasy is to be exposed by the pastor. It's to be exposed by the pastor. Verse six, and pointing out these things to the brethren, talking to Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now again, sadly, many churches in America have their pastors so busy that the very things that they should be focusing on, the teaching of God's word and prayer and its preparation, they're doing all kinds of crazy things. If God has called a pastor to preach the word and he hasn't called every elder to do that, some are worthy of double honor who earn their money, so to speak, through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. But if that is what God has called a man of God to do, then that's what he needs to do. And he needs to jettison some of the expectations that people have him on being at this meeting or that meeting and every other meeting. And he needs to put his focus where it is. A good servant must be, notice first, nourished on the words of the faith. It's much like Deuteronomy 6. These words must first be in your heart, dads. Then you can teach them to your children as you walk in the way. Likewise, a pastor must himself be nourishing himself on the truth of God's word so that he can point out error when it is plain. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest three applications as we close our time off this morning. Number one, the apostasy of our day is a reminder that we are living in the latter times. Listen, although no one knows but God when Christ will come back to rapture his church, the increase in demonic doctrine should alert us that that time is fast approaching. These are the days of Satan, and his servants are everywhere. And we need to be alert to what is happening right at the end of our nose. And if you don't see it, my friend, you are blind. And many will come like a Joel Osteen or a T.D. Jakes or a Joyce Myers. They're all crooks. They're crooks. They don't even have the gospel. They preach a different gospel. And people love them because they're so ignorant they don't even know their book anymore. And they can't even see the error of it. Listen, they may speak well, they may be persuasive, they may move you emotionally, but we are to reject the false teachers of our day, and the fact that there are so many is a constant reminder that we are living at the end of this age. Secondly, the apostasy of our day is a motivation to know our Bibles, It's a motivation to know our Bibles. Paul just said to Timothy that you are to be constantly nourished in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. Paul's point, not just to Timothy, but to every Christian, is that you cannot combat error unless you have a diet of truth. In our personal lives and in our churches, it is absolutely essential that we digest the truth of the word of God. Only then 
Can we have a solid grounding to protect the local assembly from the deceitful spirits of the last days? Then third and finally, the apostasy of our day is a warning to guard our consciences. It's a warning to guard our consciences. Paul has already had a lot to say about the conscience. He opened the letter in 1 Timothy 1.5 by saying, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He encouraged Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19 to fight the good fight, where he says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So the true believer must keep his conscience clean. He must keep it clear, lest he be disqualified from God using him. We just read in chapter 4 and verse 2 that in the last days it will be people who by means of the hypocrisy of liars see it in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now listen, a true believer cannot sear his conscience. He cannot catarize his conscience. But he can dirty it up and then be swayed in the wrong way and lose all discernment. See, it's those who, through obedience, have trained, gymnasticized their consciences to discern good and evil that are able to make good decisions for themselves, for their families, for the people that they lead, for the ministries God has entrusted. But you go home and you dirty up your conscience and you will begin to make stupid decisions and you will regret it when you see the fruit of it. Watch over your heart with all diligence because from it flow the very issues of life. Listen, if you're hearing me today and you've never received Jesus, today is the day to be saved, the scripture teaches. And the biggest challenge you will face will not be intellectual, it will be moral. Because you see, a man's theology is driven by his morality. And you say, I don't believe that, Pastor. I don't like that preacher. He's too narrow in the moral code that he affirms. And you end up kicking your conscience to death. And then you can reach a point where you cannot hear, Jesus said, and you cannot believe. You don't come to Christ on your own. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. But if the Spirit of God is working on your heart, don't spurn him, don't put him off. Yield your heart to him and call upon Jesus in salvation. Our Father, I recognize there are some people who could say no today where they might never have another chance to say yes. So help them to see the urgency of the message that you have given us. Help them in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, the day that we're living in we know is evil. It's like a tsunami of sin and evil is sweeping our land and our world. And the decisions that the American people are making and embracing are so upside down and so far from truth 
we never would have believed this 10 years ago. So help us not to be blind. Help us to recognize that you're in control, that you're sovereign in the affairs of men and nations, that none of this has captured you by surprise, but you've warned your church that we might not be captured by the evil of our day. So help us today to be the first day of the rest of our life that if we have soiled our consciences through compromise, through things we watch or listen to, that we might repent of that and walk in the light as he is in the light. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. Maybe you're here today and you have a decision to make of a public nature. Maybe you've never confessed Jesus openly, publicly as Lord. I want to give you that chance. Maybe you've not been baptized as a symbol of your faith. Here's your chance this morning. You say, I've been saved and baptized, but I need a church home. Everyone does. If we can be that church for you, then I invite you to come as well. So if you have a public decision to make, step out now. Meet me here in the front.